All right, so now we'll skip over to 275, which is where we were starting for today. The master once repeated for us a story he'd written in his autobiography about a man who was dying of diabetes. The doctors, he told us, had given him three months to live. He determined in the time remaining to him to find God. He sat in meditation, gradually extending to longer and longer periods the time he could sit. At first, it was only 15 minutes at a time, after which he needed to get up and relieve himself. Slowly, however, he sat longer, until finally he was meditating several hours at a stretch. Constantly he prayed, Lord, come into my broken temple. The allotted three months passed, still he lived, and was sitting for steadily longer periods. Three years passed, still he was alive. At last, one day, God appeared to him. The man, emerging from his ecstasy, discovered that his body was completely healed. Lord, he cried, I didn't ask you to heal me. All I asked was that you come into my broken temple. And the Lord answered, Where my light is, there is no there no darkness can come. The saint, for he'd become one, then wrote in the sand, and on this day the Lord came into my broken temple and made it whole. What willpower, the master cried as he um, finished this story. If you tried that hard, how fast you would go. You all have strong willpower. I urge you, use it. <laughs> you know, it's, the story is about a, a whole lot of different things. But one of the things it's about, it's about is how the devotee was indifferent even from the beginning. Lord, come into my broken temple. You know, sometimes we become persuaded that we're supposed to try to be healthy. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be healthy, but it's also just interesting that from the very beginning, this man didn't care. He just saw what was happening to him, and he decided to use the time he had. And the question of the physical body healing or not just wasn't one of his questions. It was just, how, what do I do with my consciousness? When Linda Gerber was dying of cancer, she had metastasized cancer, it had returned. And she, you know, it was, she was between, she actually outlived all the doctor's predictions because her daughter was too young. She wasn't ready to go. And, uh, but in the end, it, she, didn't, she didn't live out anything like a normal lifespan. But she asked Swamiji, what should I do? You know, should I, do I try to visualize myself well? You know, what am I supposed to pray for? And Swamiji said, pray to be in the light. And he said, make an effort at all times to be in the light. Which she took very much to heart in the most beautiful way. And afterwards she said, it just made everything so simple. Because there was really no question. The question of being in the light transcended all the details. Because if she was in pain, she could be in the light. If she was afraid, she could be in the light. She felt her body dying. She could put her consciousness into the light. It was, it was just a way when Rich Bazan, who 
uh, developed um, ALS at Ananda Village. And he'd been a big, strong man. He was a, a builder. I mean, he, was a, a, he worked with his body. And he got ALS. He had four children that were not, not that old. It took him about four years before he passed, and his wife had to take care of him. And he also asked Swamiji, I put this into my book of stories, he said, what do I pray for? You know, this is a, nobody knows how to cure this ailment. Nobody lives through it. And sometimes people, it gets very complicated. And I myself have sort of, I'm, I'm never quite sure how to counsel people on this one. Because they'll begin to think it indicates a lack of God, a lack of faith in God, not to believe in the possibility of a miracle. So they will feel compelled to believe in a miracle out of faith and because they have faith in God. But sometimes the strain of having to believe in a miracle when all the evidence tells you there's not going to be one um, becomes very difficult to sustain. I, I, I answer honestly, I've never quite known exactly what to say because if somebody's telling you with great power that this is their faith, I'm certainly not going to say, no, it's not going to happen. You need to pass it over to Tandava. But uh, this, this here, is, Master's giving us a different approach. Um, you said something in two different ways there. And mm-hmm. one, the first time you said believing in the possibility of a miracle, which mm-hmm. is, feels like a different thing than believing there's going to be a miracle. And, you know, I feel like one could accept the fact that, of course, there could be a miracle without focusing everything on it and forcing yourself to believe that's going to happen. Um, because, I mean, this guy in the story, he wasn't praying for a miracle. That's the whole point, right. is that his attitude was, Lord, just, just come here. And he expected he was going to be dead in three months, and he was just going to meditate until then. Um, and it seems that like trying for the miracle well is, that's why it gets complicated yeah. because because people do really feel that they're betraying their spiritual faith well i mean you're you're making a, a distinction there that i'm not sure everyone else would make a distinction although i hear it and i think it's really important the possibility versus the expectation but it's it's a complicated issue i always feel when i'm seeing people who are faced themselves with a serious diagnosis, whether terminal or not, but very serious, or someone they love is faced with a serious diagnosis. I've never been in that position. So I, I observe it and I observe what, I, what is the dilemma that I see. Um, that's why I liked, oh, I never finished what, they, what uh, Swami said to Rich. He said, uh, um, you don't have to pray for anything. He said, just pray. Meaning, just pray to be close to God. You know, just give your life to God. Talk to God. You don't have to have an objective. He knows. He knows your heart. And it, that was an interesting thought too. That you don't really have to pray for anything, do you? You just have to talk to God. I know when a woman was trying to make what appeared to me to be and appeared to her to be a fairly serious decision, and she told Swami she just couldn't get clarity on what Master wanted from her. Swami's response, which really startled her. So you can make you can go either way with it, make any decision you like. 
Master is pleased that you thought to ask him. <laughs> In other words, it just keep, keep the company. Oh, look, Lord, we're dying now. Oh, look, my arm doesn't work anymore. Isn't this, you know, by the way, we're having trouble breathing. I mean, you're just kind of keeping the conversation going without necessarily trying to accomplish anything. And that's what this man was doing. Lord, come into my broken temple. Yeah. And that's what um, the healing prayer is. Manifest your healing presence. And don't that, do anything specifically with it. Just be there. And whatever needs to happen will happen. Um, I, I always take an opportunity to tell this story because it's important. The Master said... You know, when he, the mandated prayer, the way he said it was, Divine Mother, manifest your healing presence. Sometimes body, mind, and soul, and so on. But those were his words, manifest your healing presence. When I was 24, 25, I just changed that prayer to manifest your energy, your light, and your joy, because it sounded good to me. And being a very enthusiastic person with a lot of influence, that gradually became the prayer that most people said. And it, it really spread all over it just that's how people prayed just because the way we were you know I was leading a lot it just started happening and about 20 years later I, I, I actually it's not that I didn't know the other but I just I understood that manifest your healing presence is a really completely different statement than what I was saying because I was asking for certain things and all Master was wanting us to do was come to me God and I, had, I sent out this sort of global correction, this huge email to everyone I could think of, explaining to them that I personally was responsible for this aberration in the healing prayer. And I would be very grateful if people would help me with my karma and put it back. You know, that, that among other things, it says, don't monkey with the teachings. Be a little conscious of what you're doing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with manifest your energy, light, and joy, but it became all pervasive as a statement, and I didn't realize what he was saying because health and death are really not the issue that's the other part of it health and death really are quite incidental to realization there's that incredible story about Adi Shankaracharya and one of his disciples who was always nervous about this and about that and he was always trying to calm her and says well what if I do that if I do that Guruji maybe I'll die and he turned to her and he said die and she did she just died, just like there, died. There's a story about St. Paul, about when some people who, all the Christians were, the new Christians were all putting their resources together, and there was a couple that withheld a great, this is in the Acts of the Apostles, they withheld a great deal of their money and pretended to put it all in to help everyone, but they weren't actually doing it. I don't have the details exactly right, but it was real close to, you know, to die, and they very shortly after died. Do I have that correct? That's what I, re that's what I remember reading, because it was really shocking. But it was just, you know, this was not the right thing, so you're off the planet. I mean, the, they can be very casual about this, because it doesn't matter. We're on such a long trajectory. And that, that's a very fine balance point, because here's the other side of it, because these are big, big questions. When Happy Winningham had AIDS. She had AIDS very early in the epidemic. And uh, she was struggling to stay in her body. And she sort of said to Swami, cause she, and then she'd had at least one or two death and return experiences. So she had absolutely no fear. 
of leaving her body. And, and to stay in her body required medicines and, you know, she had to devote a lot of time to keep it going. Because by that time she was pretty unwell. She sort of said also it's like having a bad case of the flu all the time. She still did a lot of things with that. But Swamiji's answer was, you know, physical body is a great blessing. To be, have grown up and found the spiritual path and have Kriya and be with the Guru, he said, if you die, you'll have to start over. And it'll be just a long time before you grow up and mature enough to find the, your path and be exactly where you are right now. So he said, you should stay in your body as long as you can use it for your spiritual benefit. And, you know, it, another way to put that is as long as you can do Kriya. He, he used that phrase, as long as you can do Kriya, but what he really meant was, as long as it is spiritually beneficial to you to have that body, you should stay in it. When it becomes an overwhelming obstacle to your spiritual progress, then you should let it go. But it was an interesting, it's a very interesting question, and it's related to all this, because you do face that, especially with medicine, which gives you lots of choices, but also very much deeply in yourself. In uh, the last couple of years of Swami's life, he was taken care of in the last years of his life by Miriam, who was a, a, a nurse who had a great deal of experience with um, aging people, with dying people. She was a very, very experienced person and very professional in her nursing and also a deep devotee. So it was a very God-sent thing. And Swami had, had made, it, made it clear a little bit before this, he wanted us all to know that Miriam was going to decide. He didn't want a lot of other people coming in and acting as if because they had other positions within Ananda that they had a superior right to her to make decisions about her, his health. Then she was very clear with everyone else, but I expect you to advise and help me. You know, so it was very harmonious, but it was interesting he made that. And he made it clear to her you know, that he, he, all the things obviously he didn't want. But at, at a point at the end of his life, when they were in Pune, when they were living in the Pune house, um, his kidneys began to shut down. It was a complicated medical situation, and she thought other things were happening. She was always on the phone to Dr. Peter in America, so she wasn't on her own with it. But it took them a while to realize that it was his kidneys that was causing the trouble. So he goes to... They, they take him to the hospital in Pune and he, they're going to have to do dialysis. They're not, they're not putting him on dialysis for the rest of his life, although it may have been a question about whether he would be or not. But at that moment, they would have to put him into dialysis in order for him to recover. And, you know, that was, a, that was a pretty big step. And so Swami is just barely present and barely conscious. And Miriam realizes that she's She's standing on the edge of one of these. Like, does he just want to go home? You know, should she just take him home? Or, and and he, he, he never wants to be in the hospital. She said, you know, I cannot do this for you. Because she was able to do, and the doctors who got to know her allowed her to do a great many things at home with him that they would not normally have allowed. But she said, I can't do this for you. You're going to have to stay in the hospital. It's a big procedure and there's nothing I can do, would you rather go home? And she said he'd just been barely speaking above a whisper, and he said, 
I have a lot more work to do for Master. <laughs> I'll stay in the hospital. <laughs> I mean, perhaps that's a little exaggerated, but the way she said it was just about like that. He said, I just have more to do. I'm not finished. And he did quite, I, I can't remember, it's in my book, but I can't remember precisely what came after, but a number of important things. I'm not sure where the Patanjali came after, and, but a few things that were very important came after. It wasn't, it was a little bit of time. I don't remember. Right now it's, I can't, I can't conjure it. But uh, it, was, it was very interesting, you know. That, but there it was. It was like, it would be so easy to let the body go. He was so ready to get rid of the body. But no, there was more spiritual work he could do with that body, so he just wasn't going to give it up yet. Yeah, interesting. And just to finish, this is, all, this is in my book of Miracles and Answered Prayers. This was one of those incredible stories I listened to in the car when I was driving home as I was talking about that Happy gave power, uh, me- power of medical decision to Michael Gornick. They, had, they all lived, uh, Happy lived with Michael's family. They all lived together. They were very good friends. So he was the one who had to decide. And she'd given pretty specific instructions if I'm in a coma for a week, because she'd come back so many times. From, if I'm in a coma for a week, you know, take off all life support. But after five days... Everybody was pushing for her to take, for him to do it. And it, it, there's more to the story which you should read. Happy, um, actually literally manifesting in his hotel room and various other things. But just when he was about to take her off life support, she woke up. And she was awake for about two days, maybe. Mostly very disoriented, not quite sure what was happening. And then she, she passed away on her own. And Michael writes, it's so touching. He says, you know, it was her last act of friendship to me that even though I was ready to make that decision, uh, she, she made it so that I, I didn't have to because it was really hard to do. You know, it was so sweet. But these, you know, we just, all these ways that God is working with us, we just don't know what's going on. Oh, fascinating. So let me see what else he said. Well, I think that is about it. The last part is what willpower. The other part of this story is just simply what you can do with willpower if you can actually apply it. It's very impressive, isn't it? And it's, uh, you know, the, the, the power of, of being so near death makes everything a little more focused. When Paula um, got cancer... I guess she actually got it twice, and then the third time is when she died. So I don't know. I think it was, but it was after the first time. She had a very childlike way of speaking. And I can't remember what prompted her to say this, but she said to me on the phone, You know, Asha, I've had cancer, so I don't have the luxury of having a single negative thought. (laughs) She said like that. And I've so often thought the luxury of a single negative thought You know, all of us think we have the luxury of having negative thoughts because we're not thinking about death or cancer or arthritis or diabetes or God knows whatever else we get. And we indulge ourselves in having negative thoughts. It's a luxury that was taken away from her by cancer. She, I said to her, which is true, I said, Paula, you are the sweetest person I've ever met, but 
if you think there's room for improvement, go ahead. <laughs> I said, you're putting us all in the shade as it is already, but just go ahead. But I, I think about that. What makes us think we have the luxury of that? You think of a Swamiji's meditation, the first meditation he had at the Portuncula, the first time he went to Assisi, 1972. And he said he was meditating in the Portuncula where St. Francis lived. And he said, he, as he put it, he wasn't prepared. He, he had no way to have prepared himself for the extraordinary sweetness of St. Francis's consciousness. Said it was just so sweet that he actually prayed to Francis and he said, you know, how can you be so sweet? And he, what he heard is, by considering everyone in the world as my brother and sister and by never judging. He said first, by never judging, by considering everyone as my brother and sister, but most of all, by never judging. So you realize if you just see people with the same love that God sees us, now this takes us back to what I was saying earlier about just having that complete faith that you're accepted and loved by God. And I was talking about, you know, one of my best girlfriends. I just, I just have that. Now let me, let me think about it for a minute, what I want trying to say. If you ever feel it, either toward anyone or if anybody expresses it toward you, you realize how different it is than the kind of accepting, non-accepting, openness, protection, disdain. You know, it's just everything else is really, really, really complicated. But how sweet you are when you're not doing that. But Francis wasn't in any way stupid. He just saw everyone as God sees us. That's what I was going back to. It, it's, it's so powerful to remember that we are all equal before God. You know, not just Jesus Christ and Krishna, but everyone on earth. That was Swamiji's um, answer to his prayer when we were being persecuted so viciously. Um, and the attorneys who were engaged on the other side were, well, actually, everyone. It was just this horrible... Um, dishonest, mean, dishonest thing going on. And Swamiji, you know, he had to work his way through it and he was praying to Divine Mother. He said, everything I've done is for you. If you want to take all of this away from me, he said, it's never been mine. I've never had any ambition. I've just done it because it was my way of serving to you. And he prayed to Babaji. But, and he said, but why would you allow such unscrupulous people to be your instruments? I mean, just sort of, that was so confusing to him. How can such evil people be acting on your behalf? Because they were evil. And Swami said, Babaji answered, they are all my children. And so you, you think of the most awful person, and then you think that God has an equal regard, not just Krishna, not just Babaji, but even those on earth who have sinned most greatly. It's, it's marvelous to contemplate. This is the first time I've thought about this in relation to that story, which is that we learn something from having our desires thwarted, but we learn more from having our desires fulfilled. And those people who are causing such havoc in our lives with that lawsuit 
were getting to fulfill well, that desires. that desire to oh, reap see. that kind of havoc. I mean, what a blessing for them. They came in contact with a saint and they got their own weird kind of blessing. And they'll from get it. and they'll get the karma that comes with it and then they'll learn and then they'll learn faster. That's exactly right. When we were in the Bertolucci lawsuit, which was the sexual harassment misconduct lawsuit, which because of a lot of reasons that really had nothing to do with the validity of the case at all zero because the case had no validity, we actually lost. Big story, but that's not the story here tonight. Um, and I was sitting in the courtroom, and when the verdict came down, and they won, and this woman is sitting over here, who is not a nice person, and I was so pleased that my first response was great sympathy for her, because not only had she perpetrated this extremely dishonest, self-serving thing against very good people, but the fact that she had won meant that the, the delusion would roll on for a lot longer. You know, in, it, instead of it being thwarted, she'd gotten what she wanted and now she was going to dine out on it for a long time besides spending a lot of the money we had to give her. And like, oh my, so by the time it did catch up with her, it would be even worse. But I'm saying it right. right you are saying it correctly. That because you learn more when you have your desires exactly. fulfilled. Because, yeah. I mean, it does seem like they can get away with it, but they also have the opportunity now to see how happy it does, in fact, make them in any sort of lasting way, which is hopefully not much. Whereas if they had failed, they would just keep trying. No, all that of that of is thing. exactly true. And, and it's, that's why God loves them just the same. I think of it this way. If, you know, if the murderer kills the whole family and spares the baby... God is rejoicing because he spared the baby. You know, and, and you look at it like being so horrible, but from wherever he was standing, and in, in this case, what I saw was they weren't finished. You know, there was a woman I knew who, whose son, um, somehow the woman intuitively knew that her son had an evil destiny. And she, had, she was a very good woman, but she just... She had multiple children, but one of her, her sons had a really evil destiny and eventually was in prison and broke out of prison and eventually died in a police shootout. I mean, this is, you know, this is not a person who had any relationship to that sort of thing, but she gave birth to a child like this. Um, but I remember her, because she was very spiritual and she found a way to work with it, she just said, you know, I was helping someone who was still on their way down. They hadn't really hit bottom yet, and so I tried to help as much as I could, but the, the negative trajectory was still going on. And so, you know, you, you'd like to, if you have someone with a negative trajectory, you, you kind of hope you get them at the point that they turn around. But she saw that he hadn't reached the turnaround point. So that was what I felt when that happened, which is, oh my they still have to go farther out, which means that when they finally make the turn, they've got a longer distance to come back. And I felt very sorry for them, because I was hoping that they would... But anyway, I was, as I said, above all, mostly, I was extremely proud of myself, because I thought, that's really nice, that instead of being angry at them, I realized this has nothing to do with me, this is just their karma. You know, I'm, I know who I am. Um, Jan, did you want to say something? No, okay. Any other comments? All right, let's take a short break. Okay.
Anything, kind of comments or questions? If not, we'll go on to 276. When Smith left, the master told me, he went to his wife and said, come on, we're leaving this place. <laughs> oh no, she replied. You leave if you want to. I am staying with my guru. I always said the reason God brought that family here was for her sake. I remember during the Depression years when they had little money for food and often went hungry, Smith would sometimes go alone to his parents' house to have a good meal. Ooh, that's not very nice. Someone asked the master, when will he return? Never, was the reply. He was never in. Of course, we don't know who Smith was, but Smith obviously gave the impression that he was in. So that's why Master said that. Of Norman, on the other hand, the Master said, he hasn't left. His heart is always with me. It's very interesting, isn't it? Did Norman leave while Master... Yeah, Norman left while Master was still alive. Yeah. But his heart is always with me. So, several things. I mean, Master is again talking about where marriage fits in on the whole spiritual path. And this was the example that I was speaking of earlier. If, if your biological or other relations ask you to do something that is contrary to your spiritual interests, um, and especially in this case where, I mean, it's not like a small child or something like that that's dependent upon you, but even then it's, it becomes a, it's a very subtle question. Just, there was no question. There was just no reason why she would stay with him. He wanted, she want, he wanted to take her away from Master. You know, this is um, a, a woman who came here for a while who was, her background was more of a fundamentalist Christian. Um, and she became uneasy one day and she asked me whether we actually believed in marriage. And of course we do. But I had to answer her, not more than we believe in finding God. Which, you know, some traditions just simply equate the two. You just, fa family life is the way that you serve and find God. But uh, Master simply never felt that way. He, it, he, he did not condone um, frivolity, promiscuity, uh, well, that's not the word, fickleness. Fickleness is the word that he condemned. Um, when you make a commitment, you shouldn't be fickle. Loyalty is the first law of God. But if a lower duty conflicts with a higher duty, then the lower ceases to be a duty. And that was what I was trying to say to that woman. Uh, it, it's a high value, but there's higher values. And if those higher values conflict, there was a couple, they weren't actually in the community, they were peripheral to it when we were still up at the village. And... They'd been married for seven or eight years. And then she decided that she wanted to leave the marriage. And when she decided to leave it, she, she said, she, she confessed what she'd never said before, that her husband had always opposed her meditation. And literally when she would sit to meditate, he would turn on the radio or he would turn on the television. He would try to make as much noise as possible to make it difficult for her to meditate. Swami's response when he heard that, he says, she stayed with him for seven years. He said, I wouldn't have lasted 15 minutes. Just like that. And Master tells that story about going back to uh, India and the, 
woman, the wife that was destined, his family tried to get him to marry, that he got his cousin to marry instead, who had turned out to be a shrew. And she said the cousin was tiptoeing around his own house. And, and then Master said, you were destined to be my wife, so I feel I have some right to speak. You know, this is all so impersonal for Americans, but anyway, that's how it was. And he said, if you had treated me the way you're treating him, I would have left for the Himalayas the first week. You know, it, 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 it just sort of tells you whether, you know, just sets up for you to really understand how all these things fit in proportion. And Master also saying, I felt the family came for her sake. It wasn't, you know, he may have acted toward the man as if he were sincerely, sincerely part of the family in an attempt. I've, I've seen Swami do this a lot. If you're loyalty to someone, if you're loyal to someone, out of loyalty to them, you have to be loyal to the people they are loyal to. And I've, I've watched Swami be just so completely willing. You know, if you have wife, you have children, you have a husband, you have parents that are important to you, he'll do everything he can to help them, even though there may be no future in it. And he may know there's no future in it, as long as you're loyal to them, because otherwise it puts you in an impossible position. And, but it's also, I've remembered that many times, just him saying that. You have, if you're loyal to someone, you have to be loyal to those they are loyal to. And that's one of those acts of friendship that just sort of make us you know, all into a family. And so he treated Smith, whoever he was, and I, I vaguely know something about him, but I think he actually had some sort of a position even within the organization. But Master always could see what was happening. And there was a, there's a phrase that, Swami, that we use at Ananda a lot. It, you have to let something play itself out. Often people are wanting, coming and demanding action, but the situation isn't ripe for action. You have to let it play itself out. Um, Master may have known, for example, that this woman, that the husband was not worthy of his wife, which is what he implies when they were hungry, the husband would go off and get food, but he wouldn't take his wife with him. I mean, or, you know, he wouldn't bring sandwiches home in his pocket. I mean, whatever it was, it was, Master could see that the man wasn't worthy of his wife. But the situation had to play itself out, because if Master had pushed the point too soon, who knows? what would have happened. But it, he just let it play itself out. The karma ran its course. And then when the moment came where she really had to make the choice, she just made the, the choice and there was no issue. You, you can go if you want, but I'm not going to go. And so many points are there, but they're all really worth noting. Then he adds that he'll never come back because he was never really in. Uh, th those sorts of comments make a person kind of paranoid. So you don't like to dwell on it as if it was too confusing. My own experience has been that when people are really peripheral, no matter where they, what they appear to be, it's always obvious. And, and it's always obvious on a subtle level. And I, I actually think that the people themselves know it somehow. There's, they, there's a, Swami puts it somewhere in here or in some other book. Just there's always a little bit of a back door open. If this doesn't work out, I could go do something else. I, was it in this book? I'm trying to remember when I was talking about it. But it, it, uh, 
Swami, maybe it was just I was reading it, but he said, you know, you just have to reach the point where it isn't a question of if this works out, it's that this is all I'm ever going to do. And there's no, there's no way it could not work out because it's like when Jesus asked Peter, because at the end of Jesus' life when all the disciples began to leave because he was saying, eat my body and drink my blood. And my, at least my Jerusalem Bible, which is very friendly in its translation, has this marvelous line which is so real. The disciples said one to another, this is a hard teaching. I mean, you can see it. If, if, if I said something completely wacky here, and then you all kind of go out and on the patio and you're kind of looking at each other like, you know, I'd like coming here, but do you, did you hear what she said? And it seems like she's going a little crackers on us. You know, this is a hard teaching. What are we supposed to do with it? It's just so natural, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Because in, in, you see it in real life. And then many walked with him no more. They just said, you know, this has been fine until now, but he's clearly nuts. I'm just going to go away. So then Jesus says to Peter, and he says it very conversationally, are you going to leave me too? And you know, that you can see them, there's no context, there's no full conversation. They're having dinner, but you know, Desdemona and this one and this one are all gone now, you know, don't worry, Monica's not coming back, and Henry's not coming back, and Stephen's not coming back. So Jesus turns to Peter and says, what about you? They're all fleeing, are you going to flee too? And Peter says, where would I go? He doesn't say, oh, I understand everything you're saying. They just didn't understand like I understand. And I know you were speaking intuitively. And here's what it really means. He gave, he gave such a different answer. And which implied that he didn't have any idea what Jesus was doing either. He may have even been a little freaked out. But there was no other place to go. Where would I go? And I, I, I think about that a lot of times. Where would I go? For all my years at Ananda, there was just never any place to go. Where could I go from here? Shivani, who, who says that they always up the standard just after she got in. That's how she describes herself. <laughs> that she just sort of made it in each time before they, they made it a higher bar. She's exaggerating, but she was very rebellious at the beginning. And so... In fact, there was a little truth in it. But she had some kind of a karmic fear of being expelled. And every once in a while, she would get, when we were all living at the village, she'd get a message for this when we wanted to speak to her. <laughs> and in, there was no telephones or any kind of electronic communication. And we didn't have cars, many of us, including her. So to, you'd get the message, you'd be at the farm, which is more than a mile walk, and then you'd have to walk over to Swami's house, which gave you a lot of time to worry. So she, she had more than one, or at least, I mean, I know she had one, maybe she had, I think she had more than one, where she had to go all the way across the hill, preparing herself to be expelled, and planning what, how she was going to deal with it, you know, when it, the time came. And her plan was, generally speaking, was to move right next door and just, you know, keep on. It just, she was, she was not going to allow herself to be expelled, really. Even if she had to leave, she was not going to quit. You know, and that was sort of what the where karma was for her. Yeah, where could you go? When I uh, flew once to India by myself, I took Ajayana Airlines, 
which is a Korean, South Korean airline, and it stopped in Seoul. And I had maybe four hours of a layover all by myself in Seoul, Korea. Very nice airport with an excellent vegetarian restaurant and a nice airline, I would add. And so it was a very pleasant time, but I just hallucinated, didn't hallucinate, I imagined. I imagined World War III breaks out while I'm in this airport. You know, something happens, and I am in South Korea for the rest of my life. And I can't get out, and I can't communicate, and I don't know Korean. I mean, I have to... But I just, I just played the whole thing out. Of course, first I'd have to be a hotel maid and learn Korean. But it would only be a matter of time before I'd start in a non-dissenter in Seoul because what else could I do? You know, even if I was forced to go away, where would I go? I mean, those are, it's a very good, extremely good exercise to run yourself through because you'll also find out where you think you could go. <laughs> you know, where you're, what you think is your backup plan. Even if you think you don't have one, you'll sort of discover what your backup plan is. And it, it's a, when we were in all the, that litigation, and we faced, I mean, eventually, Ananda Village had to go into bankruptcy. It was a big complicated thing. We, we faced the possibility that we could lose everything. And even though Ananda Palo Alto there was, there was a very serious effort to, to um, hold every Ananda entity responsible as the alter ego of Swami Kriyananda, that whatever he did was a pass-through to every aspect of Ananda, which would put everybody's assets in jeopardy. It was a very evil effort. We actually won. That was one of the few things we won. Of course, we would win it. It was crazy, but we didn't win a lot of things we should have. But the very real thought that it would all be just taken away from us. We'd have no place to live and no place to meet. My picture was always, and I'd play it out because I didn't want to suppress the fear. You can't make yourself not afraid by saying, oh, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. I remember in, in June, whatever it was, 26, I think, 1976, standing up on the, on the what's Rajasi Ridge now, no, uh, Sunset Ridge up there, that road, whatever that, the top of the hill is, with Joe Tish. And we, you know, we lived in the forest. There were forest fires all the time. And we're watching this huge blaze downhill from us with the wind behind it coming up a hillside after seven years of drought. And this thing is heading right for us. And, you know, nothing bad ever happened to us. I said, Jyotish, this looks like it's going to burn down Ananda. And he said, yes, I think it can. And it was like, Wow. This could really happen. And then within a short period of time, it, it crossed our little fire line, which it just kind of was amused by our fire line. So we're out there with our little tools and things. <clears throat> the fire is now on both sides of us. We were not stupid. We could tell that wasn't a good thing to be, place to be because it just jumped over the, the road. And then it went to the trees, and it, it went up to the top and started tree-topping heading for where all the houses were, you know, and it's like, yeah, this is really happening. So that was just one experience. I, I uh, you know, you get so, if God wants it, he'll take it. <laughs> you can just do anything you want to protect it. If he wants it, he'll take it, period. It was a, a marvelous experience. Did, I didn't lose anything, but even those who did, it was just like, 
what an illusion it is that we're safe. So you can't make yourself safe by saying it won't happen to you. You have to make yourself safe by being detached from whether it happens to you. So I was pretty sure we wouldn't lose everything, but we could easily have lost everything. Everything in that lawsuit was so insane and it all went against us and had nothing to do with justice, logic, or truth. So why on earth would we be spared? But I I just ended up with this marvelous picture and and we were all gathered on Monroe Avenue. We were it's like the picture was like we were evicted. I mean none of this was realistic, but like we were just like pushed out of our houses, like happens to people. And so we're all on Monroe, just right there. And we're all a little nervous and sort of like that and then someone cracks a good joke and then someone cracks another good joke and pretty soon we're all just laughing and we just pick up our little hobo bundles and we just start walking down the road. <laughs> And the whole picture got to be so much fun. Like, where, you know, it was just like, where are we, we going to live? Where are we going to meet? What is going to happen? But, well, but nobody can take away your love for God. And, you know, things could get worse because I'm speaking of the litigation. We often said to ourselves, isn't this wonderful? In previous ages, they would have imprisoned all of us. And instead, here we are having lunch in an Italian restaurant right next to the courthouse, you know, <laughs> able to order our own food and we're not hungry. We're not living in dark, dank places alone with rats. You know, could be worse. <laughs> we were very grateful that we'd advanced to the point where we weren't being poisoned, uh, imprisoned, poisoned also. <laughs> Which, you know, it, it wasn't fun, but it also wasn't unbearable because there it was. But anything that I ask Swamiji, how can you tell whether you still have karma with something? Very simple answer, if you're afraid of it. And that's, I mean, that's an incredible uh, template to apply. Anything you have fear of, I mean, think about it. Anything that you fear means that if it happens to you, you won't trust that God is doing what he should be doing. So anything new, and that applies just right across. Anything we're afraid of. But that also humbles you because it tells, it tells me, hmm, maybe I'm not quite as free as I'd like to be. And recognize, oh, there's a little more work to do here or a lot more work to do here. And it's fine. You know, we, don't, we can't be more than we are. Again, don't suppress it. Just, you know, there's a lot of things I'm afraid of, God, so if you give them to me, you're going to have to give me more courage than I have right now. And with all those fears, we may be at this for a while. So I start making investments in my next incarnation, (laughs) just thinking that we might not really finish the whole story yet. So these are the things that maybe this would help. How about this? And just, I just, I mean, the other side of that, truthfully, about more lives is, let's see, we just do the best we can, and we 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 will keep on doing the best we can until this life is over. And when this life is over, then whatever comes next just comes next. I've laid out my whole wish list. Yeah, I have my wish list. If we want to become what I call 642s. 642s is chapter 6, verse 42 in the Bhagavad Gita that says, if you try for God realization and don't make it, you'll get to be born to yogis. And such births are very hard to come by. 642s. That's what I, I would have, have told those who were born. 
those who were those who were born to Ananda families, you know, you know, what do we call them? Native born. So I call them six forty twos. It hasn't really caught on yet. <laughs> Kashi said a set of precedent work for him. Kashi. Oh, that Kashi. Yes, exactly. He got, yes, Master came to get him. I thought you were thinking one of the, there's, the, there's a Kashi who's a 642, and I thought that's what you meant. <laughs> All right, great souls. I think that's the end of the evening. Okay, I did. I went back and got 267, which I'd missed. Pardon me, there's one more question. Okay. There's a story I've been trying to remember. Just sec over here, please. A story about someone who was, uh, I think, with Master and was kicked out, and the person brushed themselves off and came back and came in. Came back in. Do, do you That's know that? Actually, I think that is a true story where Master threw someone out of the ashram, and the person just brushed himself off and walked back in. Yeah. I, I, others remember that. I think if somehow he just threw him out, and he said, Too bad. <laughs> That's a great spirit. That was sort of what Shivani was going through, you know, too bad. <laughs> All right, so I did 267, which was uh, a pickup, and then we did just two, 275 and 276. Okay.